I feel like I need to do this. Um, it's been a long night, and I feel like we are really finding it harder to breathe, just as Maroon 5 did in 2004. That's the one you picked? You didn't want to go with your Destiny's Child? I, well, we did lose our breath, too, so. Oh, God, I love Destiny's Child. <laughs> They're wonderful. So good. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. And welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Moni Amin, joined by my lovely co-host, Dr. Meredith Elizabeth Trubeth. How are you doing this evening? Doing pretty well. How are you? You're holding up, girl. I am, barely. (laughs) Well, on tonight's show, we have a great conversation about um, acute exacerbations of COPD with our guest, Dr. Jim O'Brien. And in just a minute, Cyrus, Dr. Cyrus Askin's going to tell you a little bit more about our guest. But in the meantime, Meredith, will you please let the good people in the audience know what this show is about? Uh, Sure, Moni, I'd love to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Awesome. Well, happy to be here on uh, air with with both of you and uh, happy to to welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Jim O'Brien, with whom we had a great, great conversation about uh, acute exacerbations of COPD. Uh, So Dr. O'Brien is a graduate of the University of Minnesota uh, Medical School. He did an internal medicine residency at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis. Then he went on to do a pulmonary fellowship at NYU, followed by a critical care fellowship at Stanford. Dr. O'Brien's practiced pulmonary and critical care for uh, about 15 years in the Seattle area before returning to academics at National Jewish Health in Denver. Uh, And he's practiced for about 30 uh, or more years at this point, Uh, so a wealth of experience. Uh, In addition to continuing to see pulmonary and critical care patients, Dr. O'Brien has been part of the COPD group at National Jewish since 2013. So we are super excited to have this expert in the field with us tonight, and we cannot wait to dive in. Hi, Jim. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Cyrus, can you take us to our first case from Cashlack? I would love to. Do you have certain clinical skills that you need to brush up on? Perhaps ECG interpretation or point-of-care ultrasound? Or maybe you are interested in continuing education. Then you need to check out MedMastery, the Clinical Skills Academy. MedMastery is an award-winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association. They offer an affordable subscription, which will give you access to their entire course library of more than 100 CME-accredited courses and workshops on topics like mechanical ventilation, fluids and electrolytes, chest X-ray interpretation, echocardiography, pulmonary function testing, ECG from the basics up to advanced skills like culture monitoring and stress testing, and so much more. MedMastery's courses are taught by top-notch educators who break concepts down into easy-to-digest, short, five-minute videos that you can cram into your busy schedule. Listeners of this show can claim a 15% discount off an annual MedMastery Pro subscription, which is a savings of more than $80. Just go to www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders to claim your discount. All subscriptions are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so what are you waiting for? Take advantage of the discount and give MedMastery a try. Again, that's www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders. Our, our case uh, coming from Cashlack Memorial. So you are working at a nearby safety net hospital affiliated with uh, Cashlack Memorial, and you're called to the emergency department to evaluate Ms. Natalie Harrison. Uh, 
The ED physician tells you that Ms. Harrison is a 56-year-old female with an extensive smoking history who presented with shortness of breath. She started smoking at age 16 and has averaged two to three packs per day since then. Unfortunately, over the last year, she's fallen on hard times and finds herself undomiciled, moving from shelter to shelter as needed. Over the last three to four days, she's felt feverish, noticed worsening cough, which of note is productive of copious sputum, and overall endorses easy fatigability and malaise in addition to her dyspnea. Ms. Harrison has never been, uh, excuse me, has never had health insurance and does not take any medications. However, she had been seen intermittently at a local free clinic where a volunteer pulmonologist did some breathing tests and diagnosed her with chronic bronchitis. So, um, Jim, as you're listening to the patient's presentation, I guess to sort of open things up, what elements of her history are immediately concerning and what other information might be worth obtaining prior to your face-to-face -face evaluation, you know, while you're kind of on the phone thinking through what you, what you might want to do for this patient? Right. So uh, I would say that the, the important things in addition to the dyspnea and cough and et cetera would be uh, the fact that she has fever uh, making a mere acute exacerbation of COPD or even bronchitis, uh, maybe less likely and more likely she may have uh, pneumonia or some other uh, more infectious inflammatory process going on. Um, I think uh, the fact that she has copious sputum is helpful uh, in making some decisions down the road about uh, antibiotic uh, therapy. Uh, and in addition, uh, if I was getting a call from a hospitalist about this, I'd, I'd ask uh, her BMI uh, because that, that would be important given uh, information that's coming down the road uh, about whether, you know, where she should be uh, uh, sent in the hospital or disposition and uh, how concerned we may want to be with, uh, in particular, her arterial blood gas. Uh, so that, that would be an important piece of information to me. Can you elaborate specifically on that? The, the, the BMI element isn't something I routinely think about, um, except mm -hmm. in the sense that, like, a lot of my patients who have advanced COPD are, are you know, cachectic often because right. of their, their, their right. COPD. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can. I, you know, there, there's the traditional monikers of, you know, a pink puffer and a blue bloater. Uh, the pink puffer is somebody who has, uh, you know, hypoxemia uh, uh, assessment intact in their brainstem, and uh, and they will work to keep their oxygen level and their CO2 level. Uh, their CO2 response is high as well. Uh, and, and they do that at the loss of musculature. Uh, somebody who is a blue bloater usually is overweight and just doesn't give a hoot about what their carbon dioxide and their oxygen are. And that usually evolves out of uh, having sleep apnea and, and having changes occur in bicarb levels in CSF and affects the brainstem uh, over time to limit uh, CO2 and hypoxemia uh, uh, response. Uh, so if the blood gas is poor, uh, 
I get less worried about somebody who is obese or overweight and a blue bloater than I do in somebody who is uh, a pink puffer, uh, who doesn't really have much reserve when it comes to you know musculature and breathing capacity. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'll leave it at that. I see. Um, and uh, I know we talked a little bit. Um, you mentioned the fever, and you know she has these subjective fevers. We'll get later in the case, and we're, you know we'll we'll get a little more information on that front. But um, but certainly that's something that could point you in one direction or, or another. And then mm-hmm. I think you'd mentioned the copious sputum, the cough. That's something that's that's kind of worrisome and maybe maybe leaning you perhaps in the direction of a COPD exacerbation, depending on yeah. some of the other things you're finding. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I would say uh, first of all. COPD being uh, uh, highly prevalent in in smokers, uh, it's also highly prevalent in those of lower socioeconomic status and her being undomiciled, uh, is going to create like a pretest suspicion in my mind. Uh, the fact that she was diagnosed with chronic bronchitis prior to this uh, is also helpful in in sending me down a track of thinking something related to COPD. Now, when it comes to bronchitis versus pneumonia relative to a fever, uh, usually chronic bronchitis isn't, uh, doesn't cause fever. So I think less of just chronic bronchitis uh, when I hear somebody has, uh, has a fever and a white count, and down the road, I guess we would we would know that. Excellent. Okay. I think um, I might jump in for a second. I think that you also were just like, and the couple of answers you've given already referencing also like their blood gas being an important mm-hmm. variable for you. Um, mm-hmm. Could we maybe because. Um, I think so far, like what are kind of the other important indications early on blood gas, O2, are those sort of like, can you walk us through what are the important initial things you're asking for? Sure. Yeah. You know, so vital signs uh, w- would be important. And uh, with vital signs, I, I would ask for the BMI as well. We, we report those with our vital signs here. Uh, and uh then, you know, oxygen saturation is something that we can do immediately. And depending on uh, what that is, you know, understanding what their oxygen, supplemental oxygen needs are going to be, or, you know, do, you know, what, what they are uh, if they've already got supplemental oxygen. Then, uh, you know, exam, uh would be important. And I'd probably ask uh, if they're wheezing or not. Uh, it may be helpful in a diagnosis. Uh, if, if she has wheezing, it may suggest that she has a component of asthma in addition to uh, COPD. Uh, I don't think you can get a great cardiac exam in a noisy emergency department. So you know, the idea of a new murmur or something uh, I, I wouldn't depend on. And then I think of labs and, and the labs that I, I would want would be a full uh, basic metabolic panel. 
so that I can get an ion, an ion gap and an ABG. I would also want to know about the CBC, given the, you know, under wanting to understand her white count and, and, you know, her anemia status, et cetera. But uh, I think the most important labs are going to be the ABG and an anion gap. Uh, and then, uh, and then I, I'd want to know what a chest radiograph looked like. And you mentioned ABG, sorry. So are you... Ah, okay. VBG would be fine, too. Okay. I'm going to ask one more question before we go on to something else. But um, so for her, I think um, Cyrus is sort of painting like a nice picture of COPD. But um, and so we've kind of gone down like her need for like a chest x-ray. Um, but certainly I don't know that everyone would come in quite so black and white. And so certainly could be thinking of a broader differential. And is there certain times where you might be more prone to wanting to do like a CT chest or... Um, kind of what helps you decide that so uh yeah i i think uh somebody who with known copd who presents to an emergency department uh there is a broader differential than just a copd exacerbation obviously and uh in this case pneumonia is is one but uh i i this is something that that I think most of us know is that, uh, you know, uh, pulmonary emboli are uh, common in people who present to hospitals with an acute exacerbation of COPD, some literature 15 to 20% of those that present to emergency departments have uh, evidence of a pulmonary embolus. Now, Now, a pulmonary embolus may be there in a subsegmental aspect and that may not mean <clears throat> that the pulmonary embolus triggered their acute exacerbation um, but uh, PE is something that that one would have to uh, consider uh, others you know would include congestive heart failure or uh, in this case I would wonder uh, you know about somebody having uh, bacterial endocarditis and you know having valvular dysfunction or throwing emboli uh, i would also then uh, you know consider uh what else could we throw in there we throw in pleural effusions pneumothorax um, can i say one more thing about uh about a, the the role of a d-dimer in this setting because I, I would be inclined just to get a CT angiogram on her uh, in the emergency department, and I wouldn't depend on a, a D-dimer. Uh, there is some data to suggest that D-dimers are elevated in patients with having acute COPD exacerbations without evidence of pulmonary embolus. So uh, if you have a negative D-dimer in this setting, Again, like the CRP, I would probably consider it a spurious lab. Uh, and then if it's positive, uh, you know, you move on to your, your next diagnostic regimen, which is a chest CT angiogram. 
Well, so uh, I think probably moving on with the case um, so we can get, a, get get to the meat and potatoes here. Um, so unfortunately, uh, this patient doesn't have any history in the medical record, so you don't really have anything to reference. And uh, as we stated earlier, cash lack, paper, charts, who knows where the records are anyway. Um, uh, but you do have some initial labs and some imaging. Um, so the CBC gives you uh, a white count of 17, some mild anemia, th uh, thrombocytosis. Um, BMP is notable for mild hyponatremia at 128, a bicarb at 34, a creatinine at 13, um, a BUN of 47, and a lactate that's a modestly elevated at 27. Patient has a venous blood gas that's drawn. Um, the pH there is 725 on the venous gas with a PCO2 of 77. A D-dimer was also drawn um, and it's modestly elevated. Um, cardiac enzymes and BNP were obtained. They are within normal limits. Chest x-ray was uh, obtained, uh, notable for hyperinflation, but no evidence of a low bar process and no other findings there that were uh, mentioned. At this time, no CT has been obtained. Um, and then finally, the, the ED um, physician tells you that the patient's alert, awake, and oriented, but does appear a bit tired. Um, other labs that were obtained include uh, blood culture, sputum culture, um, and then a respiratory viral panel, which is pending as well. Um, so with that, you arrive to the ED, you see Ms. Harrison and review her vitals. She's currently on six liters nasal cannula. Her SAT is 89%. She's hypertensive and mildly tachycardic. And uh, you do note that despite her concerns regarding fever, she actually is and has been normothermic in the ER. Um, so felt feverish, but no fevers. So um, that's a lot of information, uh, I know. Um, so I guess just an open-ended question is, is based on that information, are there any labs or RADs that stick out to you and help you sort of um, uh, fill in your illness script for what's going on with this patient. Right. Yeah. Uh, thanks. So, uh, first of all, I'm going to address the, the anemia and the thrombos thrombocytosis. Uh, I think that's probably related to iron deficiency anemia, and I would not consider that a significant diagnostic player uh, in this case. Uh, but and yet she'll need that addressed uh, when she's uh, discharged. Uh, the sodium of uh, 128 may be related to uh, a cardiac source if she has uh, evidence, other other examination evidence like pedal edema uh, or history of <clears throat> uh, you know what might be. Uh, uh, congestive heart failure symptoms like uh, general fatigue and malaise, uh, like she complains of. Uh, and also, uh, SIADH is very common in lung disease, generally. So somebody with an infiltrate or pneumonia uh, often has a low sodium. Uh, this isn't a, a life-threatening sodium, so I think we can just tuck that uh, to the back of our head and, uh, and acknowledge it and in the setting of, uh, of her acute illness. Um, the, the bigger things to me uh, include her blood gas. And um, since you did give me uh, some of this information before, I, I put what I think is a, a full blood gas together. Uh, so the pH being 7.25, her PCO2 was 77. I'm going to give her a PO2 of about 58. 
and her bicarb of about 34. It's a Venus gas, so the CO2 might be a little bit elevated. Uh, you know, normal Venus uh, arterial to to Venus CO2 is 40 to 45. You know, 40 on the arterial side and 45 on the Venus side. So it's not a huge CO2 elevation. So this is a significant uh, elevation of CO2. And I would say that if you correct the the pH, I, I'm using a correction of with every 10 point points of CO2, you, you see a change of 0 0.08 of pH, right? I, I can't remember all these other those other uh, equations, but this one is quite helpful. I was just saying, it's really nice to hear that someone who sees these more than me is, feels the same way because I can never keep these straight. <laughs> well, it's it's very easy now with you know apps and everything just to look this stuff up. But but I think this is a, a critical part of her case in that this corrects out to her CO two being about sixty at baseline with with a pH better you know a calculated pH greater than seven point three five brings her, her CO2 down to about 60. Uh, and, and then her bicarb of 34. I mean, this shows that she's somebody that has a chronic uh, hypercapnic state, essentially, uh, or respiratory acidosis that's corrected. Um, the one thing, then, then she has an acute... Uh, respiratory acidosis, right, with her pH being down and her CO2 being elevated. So this would, for me, kind of suggest that she, that she may be overweight and she may be uh, a blue bloater or somebody that is, uh, you know, just doesn't have CO2 or hypoxia response in their brainstem and they just kind of don't care. In, in so many words about what their CO2 and their O2 is doing. I think that's a super helpful walkthrough of like of those labs and, and how you interpret them and how you sort of like uh, paint a picture, so to speak. Um, I guess one, one question we should probably get to um, is, you know, now that you're there with her and you're doing your exam, um, things like auscultation, point of care ultrasound, uh, assessing the extremities and work of breathing, how do you sort of, um, how do you sort of marry all of those skills together when you're doing your initial assessment? Yeah, I. Th th so this is something that that brings out the experiential aspect of medicine. I think, uh, you know, I I would walk into a room and kind of know in a second uh, if someone, you know, needed where they needed to go in the hospital if they needed non-invasive ventilation or mechanical ventilation. So some to analyze that, I think uh, I would look at. Uh, their breathing first, and I would look for accessory muscle uh, uh, use. I would look for paradoxical breathing, you know, chest down, abdomen up, abdomen down, chest up. And uh, I would look at her eyes and see how, how distressed he or she is. Uh, and, and I would get a sense of what their work of breathing uh, 
uh, was based on that. I, I would see or decide if they were in respiratory distress and with respiratory distress comes usually uh, elevated work of breathing. Uh, for other exam, uh, the, on physical exam, uh, like I say, the auscultation would be important. I wouldn't really depend on, on uh, a cardiac, sorry, a pulmonary auscultation exam would be important. I wouldn't depend that much on a cardiac uh, auscultation. And I would wanna know if they have pedal edema or not. And then also I'm you know, looking for uh, if they're blue anywhere, lips, fingernail beds, etc. Um, echo, do you want me to go through that? Of the like work of breathing, especially like signs, um, are there ones that you would treat are more concerning to you where you triage to the unit maybe faster than where you're more mm -hmm. comfortable with them being on the floor for at least a little bit? Um, can you kind of walk through that thought process? Sure, uh, paradoxical breathing is threatening. Uh, but I would also ask her, you know, if she's getting tired. And patients usually uh, know exactly what what's going on, and they, you know, they often say, "Yes, I'm, I'm gonna crap out here." And uh, and so it, it's not necessarily just the exam; it's it's the discussion uh, with the patient. I interrupted before, so if you wanted to talk about echo and ultrasound, we could go back to it. Oh, okay. All right. Um, you know, so bedside echo in this case might be helpful. Uh, we could get a sense of what her right ventricular uh, appearance is. And, you know, I would be expecting, uh, if she did have right ventricular uh, dilatation, then, then I would be even more inclined to get uh, a chest CT angiogram. Uh, understanding also that somebody in, in acute distress may have pulmonary hypertension and acute right ventricular uh, dilatation. Uh, I would get a sense of what their left ventricle looks like. And if they are at, at risk for uh, left ventricular failure in the setting of right ventricular dilatation, which may contribute to pulmonary edema, and you know we'd see any wall motion abnormalities. We'd see uh, pericardial effusion, and then I would move to the lungs and look for evidence of uh, of uh, pneumothorax. Uh, you know, with the stratosphere appearance of uh, bedside echo. Uh, with uh, I would look for uh, B lines to see you know to give us any sense if, the, if they have pulmonary edema or if they're developing acute lung injury. Uh, so that actually would be quite helpful uh, in this, you know, in kind of the early evaluation of her. And yet I still want the chest CT angiogram. So I guess with with that, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and say, okay, we're all signs at this point um, are, are leaving you with a leading diagnosis of COPD exacerbation. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we'll say that while she does look um, like she's having a little bit of difficulty breathing, after putting the oxygen on her, she is feeling better. She's starting to, you know, 
feel a little more comfortable. Um, you're not seeing that belly breathing. You're not seeing that tripoding or those retractions that would make you think, okay, this person needs to go to the intensive care unit for very close monitoring and potentially, uh, you know, uh, impending intubation. So this mm -hmm. is actually someone who we're going to say is appropriate for perhaps a progressive care unit uh, for closer monitoring, but maybe not ICU level care. Right. Um, and so um, as you're sort of putting in your admission orders and, and that sort of thing, uh, I guess maybe maybe before we get to the actual like what are you going to order and and what kind of treatments are you going to administer, I, I I did some some research and did some reading, uh, and obviously a pulmonary fellowship's not too far away from me. Um, you know, different people seem to have somewhat different definitions of what an acute exacerbation of COPD actually is, and so I was curious if you might have an operational definition. Uh, for what constitutes an exacerbation to you. Um, and then kind of a follow-up to that would be if there's a common pathophysiology that we should be familiar with in regards to those uh, exacerbations. What I've been telling patients, and, and I know my colleagues are, is that if, if they have a change from their baseline of shortness of breath, cough, or sputum, then you know they're having an acute exacerbation of COPD, and by sputum I mean the you know whether they have more sputum or purulent appearing uh, sputum, and you know and and most frequently you know this is something that occurs at home over a few days, and they uh, you know call clinic and and we make decisions on, on whether we want to see them or, you know, how to treat them over the phone. Um, if someone has enough shortness of breath or cough or uh, purulent secretions that would, you know, require that they, they go to a hospital, uh, that's, you know, considered a more severe exacerbation. And, you know, the gold guidelines <clears throat> allow stratification of COPD uh, by, uh, you know, uh, greater, greater than or equal to two exacerbations a year or one hospitalization. So my other question was sort of like, you know, having that sort of operational definition, basically increased dyspnea, increased cough, increased production of sputum, those sorts of things. Right. Um, I think that's very helpful. But then is there sort of um, an underlying pathophysiology that sort of drives yeah. these exacerbations, something that, you know, we as clinicians, our listeners, wherever they are in their training or in their lives should sort of be aware of? Yeah, things that precipitate acute exacerbation. So it's about a, th a third viruses, a third bacteria. Uh, is it somewhere in there we can include both because we know that viral illnesses predispose to bacterial uh, pathology. But then, you know, a third go undiagnosed and, and we think that it's, you know, exposure to external pollutants. But I would also suggest from our experience that, that GERD and aspiration are very important to think of, gastroesophageal reflux and aspiration. Uh, if someone has acute symptoms uh, and a history of COPD, really acute symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, it, that's something to also think about. And, and once, if you've you think that the patient had GERD and aspiration, then 
you know, bacteria, you know, either enteral, uh, enteral bacteria or uh, whatever uh, she's colonized or he or she is colonized with in their oropharynx may be helpful uh, when you're choosing antibiotics. And, and I, I think of MRSA in this case, you know, a certain number of people uh, uh, have oropharyngeal uh, uh, MRSA uh, or they're colonized with MRSA. And if somebody's aspirating and having in, you know, exacerbations of their COPD, I think one would empirically want to include MRSA in your treatment. Uh, so that would be the precipitance of CO, uh, you know, a COPD exacerbation. The, the physiology, I think, is you know, really based on uh, airway edema and uh, you know, that, that there are many precipitants of, of changes in airway edema and the airway edema is most likely at the uh, small airway uh, level, two millimeters or less. Uh, if somebody has uh, bronchitis and worsening of their bronchitis, that usually suggests they have larger airway inflammatory changes. But the larger airway inflammation is an indicator of lower or smaller airway uh, edema as well, usually. So I think we've established a good sort of foundation in sort of the basics of history, labs, and then like what exactly is a COPD exacerbation. So the moment has arrived. Uh, I think it's a good time to maybe start talking a little bit about treatment. Um, so I guess, you know, we think about a lot of the, the mainstays. And I think the first thing a lot of us think about are the steroids. So kind of talk us through like dosing and choice and all that stuff. This is still... Uh an issue that's up in the air, I think. I think mo most uh, that are younger than I am uh, use oral steroids in somebody who's admitted to a hospital. Uh, when it comes to, right, I'll back up a little bit. And, and when it comes to outpatient steroids, I think it's pretty clear. Steroids are beneficial. They diminish or they increase the time to the next exacerbation. They contribute to people's improvement initially or uh, uh, faster. They, they limit failures to therapy. And so usually with any exacerbation, we use systemic steroids. Now, if somebody can't get systemic steroids, using uh, inhaled budesonide has been shown uh, to be helpful in this case. And the, the literature shows usually hospitalization, inhaled steroids or budesonide. Uh, and, and what's out there, you know, they, they uh, use nebulized budesonide uh, up to about four uh, milligrams, four to eight milligrams, which if you, you know, uh, like usually we use 0.5 milligrams you know, three or four times a day uh, for asthmatics, et cetera. Uh, so that's a lot of budesonide, uh, but it's been shown to be helpful if somebody can't get systemic steroids. Now, in the hospitalized patient who uh, is admitted with a, an acute exacerbation of COPD, I still think 
the way I read the literature and the way some of my colleagues read the literature that we just, you know, uh, we're at an impasse and, and there really has been no uh, prospective randomized controlled trial uh, comparing low-dose steroids to high-dose steroids so that we are, you know, shackled with uh, an inability to fully understand to give us this really good data. Uh, the last best data out there was from 2010. Uh, I think the author's name was Lindauer. He's a, a, a big data uh, physician, uh, researcher at uh, Tufts in Boston. And uh, he showed us that uh, the, the conclusion from the paper was that oral uh, systemic uh, steroids uh, are as good as uh, high-dose uh, IV steroids. Uh, there is a lot of editorial concern about that conclusion. Uh, one of them is that uh, nobody knew what the patient was like before they were admitted to the hospital. This was data that was gleaned from insurers and not from hospital charts. Uh, and the, the patients that, that were treated with prednisone were older, uh, did not have private insurance, most of them, uh, and, and, and it suggested that they may be of uh, lower socioeconomic class. And it could be, my speculation is that uh, they were hospitalized uh, as if they were having an outpatient acute exacerbation, perhaps, uh, you know, because they didn't you know, their, their socioeconomic conditions, et cetera, didn't allow them to be treated at home. They were hospitalized, possibly. Now, the other thing is that many of these prednisone patients crossed over uh, from the prednisone, the low-dose prednisone arm, to the IV uh, high-dose uh, steroid arm, uh, about 20% of them, 15 to 20%. And uh, it was an intention to treat trial, and uh, that wasn't taken into the final statistics. So uh, I don't want to belabor it, but <laughs> I think what I would choose uh, is I, and what I have been doing is starting people on uh, IV uh, solumedrol, 60 milligrams, two to three times a day. Uh, which comes close to overlapping with what's considered low-dose uh, steroids, which is often 50 to 80 milligrams. One of the questions that I think sometimes comes up for me is for those who are maybe on the more severe spectrum of their underlying COPD, um, I think kind of classically we're all taught, you know, five days burst steroids um, mm -hmm. and then they're done. But for those that either seem to have slower improvement, maybe because of the severity of their disease, I've heard rumors about maybe if they're like asthma, COPD overlap, you might consider tapering, but I, I don't, I don't know anything. You went so. there with the taper. I girl. did. I always wonder, my residents Man. always ask and I don't know what to do. Neither do I. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> Okay, so that's the answer. 
Well, so so as you, you know, the literature shows that that five to seven days, you know, of the same dose, just burst of uh, steroids, uh, is not inferior to longer periods or tapering, um, and yet you know, this comes into some of the philosophy of medicine is like how to look at what is a very good study and how that actually applies to an individual patient situations. The best studies are really valid relative to the the uh, subjects that they are studied in in that paper, but they exclude so many people that it's sometimes hard to legitimately apply the the conclusion from these good papers to an individual patient and and if they're not ready at five days they're not ready and you need to either continue your steroids or you know attempt to taper etc so i i would be with you on uh meredith on you know judging each individual patient uh based on their merits and etc. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good overview of the steroids. I'm not sure I ever thought that hard about the studies that had been out. So that's, oh, I'm always glad yes. to be reminded that you have to like, put them in the context of the patients that like were studied, and then does that actually meet the, the patient you're treating? You know, the next piece is maybe just me being an ignorant hospitalist. And, you know, if someone's being admitted to the hospital for COPD exacerbation, I just assume they need to be on antibiotics. So Mm-hmm. Please tell me I am right so that we can move on and then just be done with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, antibiotics in somebody with a severe uh, COPD exacerbations are, are probably helpful. And, you know, the question is what kind of antibiotic to start? Uh, you know, you, you have your, your sputum cultures cooking uh, but you want to decide firstly, I think, on whether somebody's going to be colonized with stenotrophomonas or pseudomonas, et cetera. And those, those risk factors are out there if they have a previous uh, culture. Uh, you know, if you do know the previous cultures and, they, and they, the patient has shown pseudomonas, then, then you have to cover them for pseudomonas. Uh, other risks include if they have bronchiectasis. Uh, and if, uh, you know, if they've received, uh, broad spectrum antibiotics within the last three months, they may be at risk both for Pseudomonas and MRSA. Um, so those would go into your decision-making. Let's say they, the patient doesn't have any of those risks for Pseudomonas, then, um, you'd, you'd have to decide, uh, on an antibiotic regimen, we a third generation cephalosporin is is very good. Uh, Levaquin as a a, a lung uh, related uh, fluoroquinolone is helpful. Moxifloxacin isn't used anywhere, or I don't know if you guys do you guys do y'all use moxifloxacin? Uh, not Even a ton, but some. Um, yeah, at one of the previous cash locks I worked at, we did so. Okay. All right. Anyway, I, so I haven't seen it used that much. And I don't know why we do this, but we often add azithromycin in. And I, I, I speculate that uh, it's thought to 
perhaps have immune modulatory aspects to it and, and not necessarily you know, broaden out the spectrum of an initial regimen with the third generation cephalosporin. But um, that's kind of a, uh, you know, how, how institutions and communities kind of gain a fingerprint of management. That's one of ours. I, ideally, yes. I think, you know, getting culture results would be helpful. What happens in the situation where you either never get like culture results to come back and or you get a respiratory panel and that comes back? I guess start with the first one. You don't get culture results. What do I do with that with a severe CPD exacerbation? Oh, without without you ever expecting to get cultures, uh, I, I wouldn't be very worried about it. Uh, about 50 percent of individuals with pneumonia never grow out a known bug from from their sputum and that that may be related to pneumococcus being difficult to to grow out um but mo you know at least half if not most uh aren't going to give us uh uh an answer in the the sputum culture so we have to empirically treat uh or uh hone our antibiotics to to the risk factors that the patient has and, and wanting to be broad enough to limit the risk to those that have you know, severe COPD or comorbidities that are gonna make them at high risk for mortality, age, uh, which is a high risk for mortality. So you don't wanna miss it, but you also, to be a good steward of antibiotics, don't wanna be too broad. Does that get to the point, or oh, and then you then you had the, the respiratory, respiratory panel. panel. Yeah, is that the viral panel you're talking? Yeah. About? So, like, how does that play in? Like, say, you know, maybe you you don't get cultures back, but you do have this positive, like, pick, you know, vir virus NOS on your RSV. Your what about influenza? Panel. What do you think? That would be, that would be, right. really the only one that to me would make a difference so just to clarify so like the the reason you're saying it would be helpful to know about the specific virus is if there was treatment for it but if you found out that it was another virus would you or would you ever peel off the antibiotics or are you trying to get the anti-inflammatory effect um from them that you would keep it on regardless of the viral panel no i well i mean there's a lot of co-infection Okay. You know, because you know, a, a classic presentation for pneumococcal pneumonia is somebody saying, you know, I had this uh, viral syndrome like a cold. Then the cold kind of went away, but then I got really sick two or three days after that. And that, that's like a classic bimodal uh, presentation of someone with pneumococcal pneumonia. So I, I wouldn't. I, I would say I would think about it uh, if I if if somebody didn't have like grossly purulent secretions and they we grew a virus out, I would think of stopping my antibiotics uh, more so than if we had no microbiology information. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily, on a uniform level, just stop antibiotics. Okay. Um, 
So then I think the other mainstay of treatment that a lot of us think about are bronchodilators. Um, so do you want to just start by walking us through what kind of dose treatment, all that good stuff? Yeah. So someone who's hospitalized, you know, we, we want to start short acting bronchodilators. We usually do both of them. And none of this is based on any data, really. There's not great, uh, you know, high grade data for short acting bronchodilators, but they seem to help. Uh, so we use them. Uh, in the outpatient setting, uh, I use or we use uh, short acting bronchodilators as kind of an indicator of whether somebody is becoming more short of breath or not. So I ask patients to tell me how frequently they're using their, their lava or their llama, uh, because I use that as an indicator of, of where their COPD is going. Do you mean and, their Saba or their Sama? Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the short-acting uh, bronchodilators, uh, yes, not the long-acting. So the, so the, the you know, albuterol use or ipratropium use, if it starts increasing in frequency, then I have some idea that they're, they're more short of breath and I may be prone to treat them as if they're having, uh, you know, kind of a, a slow burn of an acute or of an exacerbation of COPD. Uh, when it comes to long-acting bronchodilators, I think the, the gold criteria uh, spells it out pretty well. Uh, and if we're going to pick one uh, to use, it would be a llama uh, over a lava or llama lava uh, for gold three or gold four patients, uh, the llama seems to have a better track record with limiting exacerbations, etc. What do you do with their home inhalers? Do you just hold them? I, I do. I would want to see them on a llama and lava in the hospital, certainly if they're, they're, you know, their home meds include that, uh, even if they don't include that. But, uh, you know, how they're delivered... Usually, I'd like to see them delivered through nebulizer in the hospital. And, you know, that's addressing this issue of whether an MDI is as helpful as a nebulizer. Yes, in the outpatient setting, the literature shows they're equivalent in, de in medication delivery. But in, in a patient who is a, maybe a little not a little delirious, uh, they're very short of breath, they're, they're maybe not that cooperative with an MDI system, I, I would like to see them on a nebulizer. Okay, so I think that that's a great overview of steroids, antibiotics, and bronchodilators, which I think are uh, all mainstays of therapy. Um, but with the time we have left, obviously being respectful of your time, Jim, um, I, I do want to talk about a couple other things, um, in particular, uh, oxygen therapy. And so obviously there's an array of options that we can use. Um, but I'm particularly interested in how you use, uh, PAP therapy, whether it be continuous or by level in, and how you sort of, uh, 
how you apply that on the inpatient setting, who are your candidates for PAP therapy, what are your endpoints, that sort of thing. So maybe you could walk us through your process. Sure. So first of all, uh, I think you need to give enough oxygen for the patient to survive. And the re one of the reasons I say that is because it sometimes can be mistaken that, you know, by giving oxygen, you may contribute to hypercapnia, um, which may be true, but you also need to give enough oxygen for the patient to survive. Uh, so you do want to target a goal of 88 to 94%, let's say. You don't want to go above that because of the Haldane effect and, you know, ventilation and perfusion uh, mismatching issues. So, so that, that given, you know, that there's enough oxygen. Uh, the, the second thing that, that, that you, you didn't mention, Cyrus, I, and I want to add is heated high flow. Yes. Huge fan. Oxygen. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Because that, that's, uh, been shown to be quite helpful. Uh, it it allows for higher flow for O2 that you know where in, in patients need higher uh, uh, FiO2 or uh, O2 flow, but also it it does actually diminish work of breathing, and uh, and it does that probably by by pressurizing the the airways, you know by about five to 10 centimeters of H2O. Uh, and, and it's quite helpful. And, and also it limits, I, I don't know the mechanism behind this, but, but it's actually, you know, it's been shown in some correlative studies that, that it limits readmission. So it's a good thing to use on the floor. Uh, when it comes to PAP therapy, I think there will, you know, there are some things that that uh, you one wants to pay attention to uh, to try to prevent somebody from needing the ICU. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, certainly if if they're complaining of being tired or short of you know short of breath and tired of breathing, probably need the ICU. Maybe would do okay on a step down unit with with BiPAP or CPAP. Uh, but then others, uh, hypercapnia, uh, uh, respiratory acidosis, uh, just as treatment of COPD. So this isn't necessarily uh, um, on the on the respiratory side. We we know that people with COPD who get uh, non-invasive uh, partial pressure ventilation uh, actually do better. So it's kind of a treatment as well in the COPD setting. They, they get out of the hospital earlier, they feel better, they turn around better. Um, so, uh, and, and I, I'll say this, even CPAP can diminish work of breathing and be helpful uh, in, in patients with acute exacerbations of COPD. Uh, most of the studies have been done with BiPAP or uh, a volume targeted uh, PAP of some kind, uh, and but you know if you, if you if you can imagine this somebody having air trapping uh, and and the their alveolar pressure at the end of exhalation is about let's say plus ten centimeters of water uh, they 
they have to generate negative 11 centimeters of water to get any movement of air into their lungs. If you put a CPAP mask on them and you match that uh, end expiratory pressure at the alveolar level with CPAP, that means they have to pull negative one centimeter of pressure to get movement of air. So that, is, that essentially diminishes work of breathing significantly. And, uh, and CPAP can sometimes be uh, easier for a patient to, to sync with uh, as opposed to BiPAP. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's, uh, if you're going to choose one or the other, I'd probably choose BiPAP, but I, I wanted to go through the CPAP thing. I think that's helpful because we often don't think about, we think of, like, I think a lot of folks are dogmatic in that it's like, okay, we're going to use CPAP for heart failure. We're going to use bi-level for COPD because of the, the Delta P, if you will. Um, and so I think it's helpful to, to look at it from that perspective. And the other thing that I want to make sure that we're, we're clear on is really the purposes of, of the purpose of, in this case, let's say bi-level therapy is to, um, decrease work of breathing, uh, enhance minute ventilation and then hopefully by doing so improve that acute hypercapnia. Um, is that like a, a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. No. The, the, and the Delta P will help uh, with the minute ventilation, which will help blow off more CO2. The, the CPAP part of that is the one that diminishes the work of breathing, which then diminishes the generation of CO2. So, so by using BiPAP, yes, you, you Got can it. use both of them. And just for maybe uh, mechanisms. to be clear, when, we talk, when I talk about Delta P or we talk about Delta P, we're talking about that um, end expiratory pressure, so that baseline pressure, and then your inspiratory pressure is going to be higher than that, resulting in a quote-unquote Delta P. So just for the mm -hmm. sake of clarity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so... Um, I guess it probably would be helpful since we're talking about a patient in the progressive care unit. Is there something in particular you look at when you have a patient on, let's say, bi-level and you're sort of worried like, okay, this could go one way or the other um, in regards to mechanical ventilation, invasive um, ventilation versus, okay, this person's going to get better. How, or is, there, yeah. is there a time course that you're like, okay, I'm going to give this person two hours and after two hours, like that's that. What's your sort of, yeah. uh, I guess, end point uh, of treatment for bi-level on the inpatient side? Uh, good question. Um, so I would work with the respiratory therapist to start BiPAP. And the one thing I would be most mindful of at, this, at that time would be uh, their anxiety, their ability to synchronize with the BiPAP because that's frequently a hurdle, right? And, and we're not really equipped on the step-down units for the amount of sedation that we can give somebody, you know, on the ICU. But it may help to, uh, in, in trying to avoid uh, benzodiazepines or minimizing uh, benzodiazepines to, to help the patient uh, with sedation a bit. Um, that would be the first thing. And then as I'm moving 
through the hours, I would at about an hour or two, I would want to check their arterial blood gas or a venous blood gas. And I would see, want to know that it's trending the right way or at least staying the same and not uh, worsening. If it is worsening at that point, I would just, and, and it is like an hour or two. I wouldn't let them languish overnight uh, without you know, reevaluating their their acid base status and their CO2 and their O2 status. Uh, when I'm thinking that I'm, I have to make a decision on whether they go into the unit or not. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. I don't know if, uh, I mean, I, I think that's what I've typically done too when I'm like either consulting on the inpatient side or when I'm doing internal medicine is like an hour or two hours mm -hmm. and you either kind of buy yourself uh, endotracheal intubation or you're, you're probably, you're moving in the right sort of along those lines, you know, I, as we move towards discharge, let's say we're getting, you know, towards the end of the hospitalization, things have gone well, we're getting ready to send our patient home. Um, I know that uh, Meredith and Moni are going to talk about some some pearls here, but I was curious, you know, there is some data, uh, conflicting data regarding PAP therapy or, or um, specifically bi-level therapy on discharge and um, how effective it can be in preventing hospitalizations or, or recurrent hospitalizations. So I was wondering if you could speak to kind of, let's say, non-invasive ventilation post COPD exacerbation, um, you know, what your thoughts are on it. And then if we're able to use it, what should the goal be? What are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to normalize the bicarb? Are we just trying to, you know, make them feel better? How do you how do you approach that? There is a suggestion that there is benefit uh, after hospitalization uh, with newer literature. The older literature show, you know, was they didn't really uh, show the positive effect of diminishing CO two and diminishing. Uh, uh, readmission uh, for, for COPD exacerbations uh, when patients who need it or qualify medically uh, to get NIV uh, uh, at their home. Uh, the, there are home problems as well, and this goes into the socioeconomic aspects of, of COPD exacerbations and who gets them. Usually it's lower socioeconomic, or often lower socioeconomic patients uh, for many reasons. They, you know, develop acute exacerbations. Um, and in this case, one of those might be is, uh, you know, there's not great uh, home accommodation for uh, having a complicated machine to help a patient uh, with doing something at home that we've been taking care of in the hospital. Uh, they may not have the family or friend support or the social support. Uh, often it's difficult to transition somebody to a, uh, a, a skilled nursing facility or, or a rehab center uh, with non-invasive ventilation. So I, I, I don't have a clear answer for this. I think it's it really is kind of a social problem with medicine vis-a-vis uh, -vis our COPD patients and patient, patients who have acute exacerbations of COPD. It's a, it's a hole in our coverage.
Yeah, I think it's a good reminder to sometimes the difference between what you practically want to do and what you are able to do with the resources provided in the system. Before we kind of move on, it, let's suppose it's a kind of different patient. They have private insurance, gold plated, platinum plated. They, 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 here is their, here is your ventilator at home. Um, now I'm the friendly neighborhood internist or pulmonologist, let's say, that's managing it on the back end. What am I looking for? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, so I, I would say we're, we're trying over the long run to, to work on somebody's CO2. So like you say, Cyrus, their, their bicarb will change. Uh, and, and that will give us the confidence that, that we're being success, successful with that intervention. Uh, what I do believe there, there is a signal for as well is that it will limit the risk for uh, readmission for COPD. And that seems to be what we all uh, are looking at. Uh, and then finally, it, it will, uh, in a broad sense, probably make the patient feel better. Thank you. That's helpful. I appreciate that. So I guess along those lines, um, I think one of the things that I often get caught up in also as you're approaching discharge is um, like, who should that patient follow up with? Um, specifically, I feel like I feel bad referring everyone to pulmonology. Um, but then I'm also like, you were just hospitalized with pretty significant COPD. So who should, you know, see Palm? Who should follow up with their primary care? What does that timeline look like? And, or is it both? What I would say is it would be very reasonable. And we actually want to see this where I practice, uh, that, that we see the patient as a, as a pulmonary group uh, within two to four weeks after discharge. And then, you know, we would make adjustments, make uh, recommendations for follow-up with us, but then, you know, hopefully kind of coax the patient back to their uh, primary care physician. The most risky part for a patient is, is about four weeks out from discharge, and, and early follow-up is probably the most significant intervention uh, in some cases, pulmonary rehab may be helpful after uh, discharge, but I think the literature is still, you know, a little iffy on that. Uh, we're actually trying to, you know, contribute to the literature uh, in that regard. I think in the interest of um, making sure that we all get to sleep at some point this evening, um, <laughs> Why don't we just, uh, I think it'd be good to kind of just do some take-home points because I think we've covered a lot of ground that's been great, but just like some, like maybe three take-home points um, that you would want us to take away at the end of this. Oh, uh, okay. I would uh, say that prevention is very important and education is important. Um, and, and so, you know, we kind of put prevention towards the end and it may be more effective towards the beginning. You know, uh, when, you're, when we're talking to our patients in the office, uh, talking about smoking, talking about uh, use of inhalers and, and appropriate, you know, effective use of inhalers, the right inhalers, uh, 
and and then uh you know how to you know try to jigger our ability to kind of limit their risk for uh exacerbations based on the gold guidelines uh secondly uh, when it comes to hospitalizations, uh, look for PE. Uh, I, th I think that's a, a pretty common uh, thing that sends an older former smoker with comorbidities into the hospital with an acute exacerbation of COPD. When admitting them, uh, broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, keep in mind uh, Pseudomonas and MRSA and risk for colonization if that that risk exists, then we want to cover the patient initially uh, with antibiotics that would cover those bugs. Uh, when it comes to systemic steroids, I think there is still what we call equipoise out there, right? That where we don't know exactly, you know, where to land on on the steroid issue. That we do know that people do better with steroid, systemic steroids when they're hospitalized as opposed to placebo. It's just the dosing. We've seen a trend in dosing in 40 to 80 milligrams a day, which it would be lower dose. Um, some of us, including myself, uh, think perhaps that higher dose may be more effective, yet there is risk for diabetes and suppression of inflammatory processes and things like that so we don't but we still don't know we don't know um, and on discharge uh, low threshold for non-invasive ventilation if people meet criteria frequently it's if they present with a pco2 of uh, 45 or greater in some of the test literature i believe that uh, medicare is is reimbursing with 52 centimeters of water or greater. Um, one would have to check that with their uh, with their local uh, Medicare system, since you know each state is a little bit different. And we will be back with our lightning round. We're going to just start by getting to know you a little bit. So, would you mind starting with your one-liner? You got it. Uh, so I'm a 62-year-old uh, physician who loves medicine, seeing patients, and uh, enjoy my family and friends. And also, I've been uh, uh, quite a traveler through my life. And just recently, I uh, got a master's degree in the philosophy of medicine at King's College in London. Man, that's like taking that whole lifelong learner thing to the next level, I have to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to quit. <laughs> what's next then i don't know actually <laughs> i think staying at work for a while <laughs> all right all right um well i guess with the lifelong learning mentality um do you have any um favorite like advice or feedback that you've ever gotten from someone during your training or career first of all i've gotten a lot of advice uh and uh, most of it has been uh, very helpful. Uh, but one that sticks out is uh, from an attending I worked with uh, when I was a resident who just said, uh, you know, never forget about the patient. And I, I think that's important, uh, has been to me, because uh, through my career, and I know others will encounter this, that, you know, academic uh, 
pressures, uh, social, economic pressures can take your mind off uh, what we're really there for, which is the patient. Wonderful advice. I love it. That's usually my guiding principle, too. So I support it. Um, I think just for sake of time and because Moni and I have been hanging on to this pick of a week, pick of the week for a while, we're going to jump to pick of the weeks. Um, Meredith, it's all you this week. It is. <laughs> Please tell. This is so good. And we're going to have definitely have a link for this one. Yeah. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, I don't know if I'm actually Cyrus and I were talking about this bef- a little bit before I air that I'm from Texas. And um, I don't know if anyone's had the extreme pleasure of watching the officer Big B uh, Fort Worth Police Department uh, recruiting video. I don't know if either of you guys have, um, but it's fabulous. It is one of the funniest things I have seen in a long time. They essentially spoofed like a used car salesman commercial and like complete with neon chirons yeah and like people pretending to be the um like balloon people that go up and down this is going to be great on video i just realized um up and down and so uh moni and i were having like a very bizarre day at work and i just um had seen it the night before and so we were watching it like on repeat for a full day so it's brought much joy to us and we'll put in the show notes for everyone else too and because it hasn't happened in a while, I will point out that this is so viral that Kelly Clarkson talked about it on our talk show. I yeah. just have to say. And it wouldn't be a complete show tonight if we didn't reference Kelly Clarkson at least once. Because it's it's been a few episodes. I've been pretty good about it, I have to say. Yeah. Okay. Enough of that. Cyrus, do you have a pick of the week for us? Picks of the week. Oh, man. Uh Yeah, I have a lot. Well, I guess uh, on the heels of taking the critical care boards yesterday, which were, that was probably one of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, I'm enjoying an an adult beverage, uh, a high noon, Um, big fan, Uh, you know, drink drink responsibly, drink in moderation, please, uh, guests and listeners. Um, But, you know, I feel like I earned it after going through the the pain and suffering that was the 10-hour ordeal of the critical care boards, um, which I could just go on and on and on about the the experience, but I will spare everyone that. Um, And then I guess if I can throw in a bonus pick of the week, I did take some time to... um, uh, read, do some pleasure reading, which I haven't had a lot of time for recently. And, uh, I'm a big music person. I'm a big chili peppers fan. And I actually got to see them at ACL this past, uh, this past time. Um, and prior to that, I read Anthony Kiedis's, uh, scar tissue, um, his autobiography, which is, um, it is a true miracle that that man is still alive. That's all I can say. (laughs) Worth the read. If you like the chili peppers. For sure. I, I, I saw them live a few years ago and remember thinking, I think maybe the touring thing maybe should slow a little bit for you. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy. What an insane life that man has had. And again, just like the fact that he is still alive is mind blowing. But there you go. I'm you know, sure. the, bo- the human body is tremendously resilient. So this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. That was excellent. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. 
and we're committed to providing high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Special thanks to our writer-producer today, Dr. Cyrus Askin, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And until next time, I've been Dr. Moni, not money, I mean. And I've been, and hopefully will continue to be, Dr. Cyrus Askin. And as always, this has been Dr. Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night.